Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, what condition conversation was in. You're Jay Talk, and we're live, Midnight 2-5. Uh, history is a big part of this show's brand, and so is science. I like science. And I like astronomy. That's why Ryan Hitchcock is here, Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire, which is far away. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Bradley. About how far away is it? Uh, it takes a couple hours to get down here. I actually applied to be a physician's assistant. I applied to their physician's assistant program. Well, many moons ago, I was rejected. If I'd been, you know, if I had been accepted, I probably wouldn't be here now. So I'm glad you're here now. Uh, I crave information on things astronomical, and I love talking to folks who not only know it cold but are able to explain it. In, in a simple way. Lots of folks know it cold. Only a few are able to explain it as it's pretty clear that you can. So I'm very excited that you're here. Thanks very much. We're going to focus on black holes, particularly uh, because recently there's been a, quote, s- s- telescopic sighting of a black hole. It's really, you don't see it, right? It's radio telescope, x-ray telescope. It's a radio telescope. Okay. That's right. So you see evidence of it, but you don't actually see anything? Well, you could take there. They are taking an image of it in a way. If you had uh, radio vision, where you could see radio light instead of seeing the visible light that you can see with your eyes. Yeah. And if you had really, really, really sharp vision, then you would, if you were to look at the particular place on the sky where that black hole was, you would see a picture that looks an awful lot like uh, what they found. But when they do the uh, measurements to actually make that image, uh, it's a very complicated data analysis process that involves a lot more than just sort of pointing a camera at it and snapping a picture. Math, a lot of math. And That's true. <laughs> you science yeah, the heck out of it. Okay. So why is it such a big deal that they've seen it? Actually, two questions. Why did it take so long? And B, why is it such a big deal? So the reason it took so long is simply that the, the object is really tiny on the sky. And so uh, when you look at that picture of the black hole, one of the first things you may notice, it looks, if you imagine what that picture looks like, it's got a sort of blurry looking ring around a dark spot in the middle. And um, 
one immediate reaction may be, well, why does that thing, why is it so blurry? I thought I was going to see a nice sort of sharp black hole there. Yeah, why is it so blurry? Right. But the thing to remember is that's probably the sharpest picture you've ever seen in your life, actually. Um, it's just blown up to really, really uh, a okay. high level of zoom. So the equivalent picture would be, uh, imagine you were standing here in Boston and um, you were looking towards San Francisco and you were taking a picture of a scene in San Francisco, it's like being able to read the letters on a dime at the from distance here? From, from here to San Francisco. Okay. And so if you think about it, that might not be the sharpest thing you've ever seen, but if you could read those letters at all, you'd say you had some pretty sharp vision. And that's uh, ultimately the big challenge um, in taking that observation was simply that the thing was so small, we had to devise a really uh, gigantic array of telescopes to be able to do it. I ask this, of course, it's the normal question to ask, but Different people answer it differently, and like you know, you kind of transpose each answer one on top of the other, and you get a better picture of what a black hole is. What is a black hole? Um, there are lots of different ways of thinking about a black hole, as you sort of alluded to. I think uh, the simplest way to think of a black hole is that it's an object that has uh, extremely strong gravity. It doesn't really matter what the object is made out of; um, it just has to be something that has reached a very high density and a very uh, a very small size so that the gravitational pull at the surface of this thing um, is extremely large. It's so big that um, you would have to move very, very quickly to get away from it. And actually, when you form a black hole, you'd have to be moving faster than the speed of light. And so since nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, even light, then that means that the interior of a black hole has such strong gravity that nothing, even light, can escape from it. Okay, good time to ask. Why is light a finite speed, and why that finite speed of 186,000 miles a second? That seems so arbitrary. That's a great question. Um, the finite speed of light comes naturally out of our understanding of the uh, um, of the general laws of electromagnetism in the universe. So there's not really a really obvious deeper fundamental answer than that in terms of the fact that light always travels at a constant speed? As far it's as mostly, we know. As far as we know, right? As far as we know, sure. Oh, of course. I mean, um, it may be in the long term that if we can write down a, uh, or we can come up with a deeper theory of, of physics that incorporates some things we don't know about, that it may become clearer why light has the speed it does. I'm just going to go ahead and write on a tablet that uh, that light can go faster than the current speed, and that someday we'll discover that, and I just want credit <laughs> when they discover it, say, that guy back in the 20th century knew that. He wrote it down. And when they do figure that out, it's going to answer a lot of questions. That's, those are my predictions. There you go. That would be a very big discovery if we did find that. I just want credit um. <laughs> right now. Now, I will say people have proposed that the speed of light we know is the same, um, uh, at least if it's in a vacuum, right? It goes different speeds if it's in air and water or whatever. That's actually why images look uh, weirdly distorted if you look through water. Um, uh, because the light actually changes speed as it comes in and out of the water. But the uh, uh, if we look in a vacuum, empty space, anywhere in the universe around us right now, light's always traveling the same speed. But there are people who have proposed that the speed of light actually changes over the age of the universe, and that if we look uh, farther back in time, that light would be traveling at a different speed. Now, there's some problems with that. I uh, would say that observational evidence hasn't really nailed that down very well. And most uh, physicists think that the speed of light stays the same all the time. Yeah. But it definitely is something that people have considered. And um, I, I don't think we can completely rule it out at the moment. Since we're kind of on the edge of talking time, space time, 
this is just this question just popped up, and it, I'd be crazy not to ask you. If time slowed down, would we know it? Ah, if time slowed down for everybody all at once, I think it would be impossible to know. Um, we're, we're, because sometimes I feel like an hour lasts so some hours seem to last so much longer than the other. <laughs> right. I swear it's just not my perception. It really, I feel like it really did slow down. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of psychology to that. I think there's been a, been an awful lot of, of research in that. But the interesting thing, I think you're right that if um, that in some ways we can measure absolute time only relative to other things, right? So if the whole universe sped up or slowed down in time, um, there would be really no way to tell. The only way to tell would be as if that changing of uh, the rate of time happened only in one particular area that you were sitting in. Then you could look at things that are outside that area. And see that there's a um, difference in the in the rate of which time yeah. goes, which is actually what happens around black holes. Um, is that that precise thing happens that time actually slow, really of, does slow down? Speaking of the the speed of light being an arbitrary speed, if if there's only if time does not change, it means there's only one rate of time, and that also seems kind of arbitrary. That seems weird in itself, right? Just I mean, how do you get at this one time? Ah, why is there one particular and, variable and how did you time arrive that at happens this, everywhere this, this in the time. universe? If it never changes, we have this one speed of time. Right. And why this one? So this is this is a really interesting philosophical question. I got to say, I know there are people who work on this and who, who do a lot of deep thinking about this. It's definitely not my area of expertise. Um, but uh, why? what time is in the first place? what it actually means for time to proceed and why time only proceeds in one direction, why time can't turn around and go the other way, is a really interesting kind of philosophy of science question um, that, that there are a lot of people who have, uh, have tried to understand. And there are some interesting potential answers to that question. And another thing, if there is only one time, is there some master clock that governs that one time? What is that master clock? clock somewhere well i mean maybe since there's these two weird arbitrary things the speed of light and and the speed of time maybe they're well maybe the answer is related to the relationship between the two i think ultimately if you define the speed of light then you do uh in a sense define the nature of time and and the other way around space time yeah i mean certainly if you actually if we think about it um the the definition of, of a second and the definition of a meter are actually tied to each other. In our, in our current <laughs> system of measurement, we define the speed of light to be an exact number. And so if you change what a second is, then you change what, it, what a meter is because the speed of light is just the ratio of those two. Oh, one other thing about light. So if I am going the speed of light and I shine a beam of light ahead of me, does that beam of light go zero miles per hour? Um, well, one no, so that also goes the speed of light. And ultimately, uh, this is uh, w- what your caller was describing. This is the uh, um, the sort of main postulate that uh, Einstein used in his theory of relativity. When he figured out how relativity worked, what he tried to figure out was what happens when an observer who's traveling close to the speed of light sees a light ray that's also uh, traveling along with it. And it turns out what, what he proposed is that the speed of light always looks like the speed of light no matter how fast you're going. You could be going, uh, you know, zero miles an hour. You could be going almost at the speed of light, and uh, you will always see light rays travel the same speed. That has all kinds of weird effects 
having to do with um, watching that it means that clocks would go at different speeds for various observers. It ultimately means that the uh, the effective mass that uh, somebody would have so changes be clear, depending on how I could fast be going, going almost the speed of light in my rocket ship. Yep, you could be going. And I have a beam of light. I flash my flashlight on, or maybe there's another guy going the same speed. He sh he shines his flashlight. I'm looking. Yep. We're both parallel. We're shooting along. He shines his flashlight. Yep. And is his beam of light going almost twice the speed of light, or just the speed of light? If it's only going the speed of light, then really it's only it's going zero more miles an hour. Well, that's the thing. So like you if it's sound, and I go, you know, approach the speed of sound, right? You know, the the front of the sound is kind of right beside me. That's ahead exactly. of me. There's no sound. That's, we're not there yet. It, it didn't get there yet. Is that the same with light or not? No. Okay. So that's light the is fundamentally different. And actually, I'm glad you you raised that because I was just gonna uh, when I teach my introductory course at Dartmouth, where I teach you know non science majors about relativity, I often ask them these questions where I I put up a little example on the board and ask them what they think intuitively the answer will be. And that's my, the thing you just described is my favorite question I ever asked them because they almost always get it wrong on the first try. Cause and, it's no, it's not in. And the correct answer is what again, think, just so I know that no matter how fast you're moving relative to, uh, to something else or to somebody else, the light ray to all observers is always looks like it's going at the speed of light relative to them. That's weird. Tough to tough to grasp rehend. It is. And that's why all this other stuff having to do with relativity and indeed having to do with black holes, why this all seems so weird to us. Okay. Because it all comes from that one sort of uh, uh, very counterintuitive thing. Now we're going to buckle down and go fast. Right. Because there's so many questions. <laughs> well, this is kind of the lightning round. It's like Jeopardy. Bang, bang, bang. Great. What, star what stars will form a black hole? What do you... what? What are the big ones? So big, ones have they got to certain be mass. Bigger, yep. It's the mass that matters, and pretty much they have to be bigger than about twenty-five times the mass of the sun. Although that exact number, we still don't know that well because a lot of the the physics is a little complicated. But it has to be a much, much larger star than the sun. Um, but we do know some. We know some stars that are even, you know, okay. as big as forty times as the size of the sun. So black hole is spherical in the way it sucks in everything. But when you see one, it looks disc-like with light shooting out of one or what looks to be light or radiation of some sort shooting out perpendicular to the flat side of the disc. Right. And what's that all about? Well, what's going on there? So you're right. A lot of people think of a black hole as being sort of like a drain that stuff spirals down into like in your sink. Like that's what I think of. Right. But a black hole really is a three-dimensional thing because the gravity acts in all three directions, right? So it really is like a, it's like a black ball and uh, the there's strong the sort of the edge of the black hole is is the same distance from it in any direction makes so like a sphere. something radiation particles shoot out in one the, one direction that's which is, right because uh, so how does that choose the direction is ah, it a polar thing that's a great question so there's two things one is that black holes can spin and so if they spin that gives them a particular direction sort of like if you spin a top you know then the top of the top is uh, uh, tells is yeah, the particular direction yeah. Right? What's up? The top of the top is the just spinning the slowest. That's right. That's exactly right. Because yep. it's going the least distance. That's exactly right. So you can define a direction like that on a black hole too. But there's another important thing. And so oh, sorry. the light just, shoot out of the, the point, which would be the equivalent of the top of the top? Yes. Okay. Generally, we think so. Where the slowest, where the 
rotation is the slowest. That's right. Okay. But we do think there's this complicated thing that goes on. When those things are actually shooting stuff out, what's happening is material gas uh, in that's sort of surrounding the black hole will fall onto it, and that will already be rotating. And so that has a particular direction um, that it spins around on and, and continues to spin around. And if you imagine a figure skater bringing their hands in, they spin faster yeah. and faster. Likewise, this gas spins faster and faster as it falls down onto the black hole. And this outflow, the stuff that you talked about, what do we call a jet, comes out the top and the bottom. That's aligned with the uh, uh, this rotation of the stuff falling in. So one thing we don't understand, and this is actually a major question in, in our understanding of black holes, is whether or not that material that's coming in, that rotation lines up with the rotation of the black hole generally or not. Some people think that it naturally does. Other people think that it might actually go the other way, and some people think it's totally random. And so that, so we don't completely know, but there definitely is this sort of disc-like okay. thing that sits on top of this round black hole. When some some mass gets sucked in, does it? I, I read that it belches out light and radiation. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, kind of eats it and spits it out. Yeah. Does that mean it's already maxed out the amount of? Mass, mass that it can hold and any additional has to be jettisoned out ah um it's not so much that it maxes out the amount that it can eat it's more that it can only eat so fast oh. so what will happen with a with the material as it falls into a black hole is that it rubs against itself it, it experiences friction and that causes it to heat up like crazy so it can get up to uh hundreds of thousands of degrees or even millions of degrees um this is, you know, getting near the temperature in the interior of the sun. And that causes it to glow and produce a huge amount of radiation. If the black hole grows too fast, then you get so much radiation coming out that the radiation actually blows away the extra stuff that's trying to fall in. And so there's kind of a thermostat on a black so hole. Can, so sometimes it can't assimilate its the energy fast enough so it just jettisons it out that's right if it grows too fast and, and it just blows the other stuff away and does it jettison out the jet is that what we see is the jet um that's an in interesting question it we don't completely know how that uh sort of uh ejection works sometimes it happens in the form of those jets sometimes it happens in radiation that's going in all directions and the precise astrophysics of that is actually one of the major questions okay. that people are trying to understand i ask you are black holes forever do they last forever and if they do, does that mean that sooner or later, much later, I'm guessing, everything will be devoured by a black hole because of their gravitational pull? Things will slowly seep in and mass will clump together and make more black holes. Is that a possibility? Well, um, you can start a trend in that direction. So black holes, definitely, they get bigger and they don't really get smaller. Once stuff goes in, it can't come out. Um, there's a process you might have heard of called Hawking radiation, which was proposed by the famous um, uh, astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, that black holes can kind of evaporate over time, uh, and they would eventually lose some of the mass that they have uh, by uh, giving off some radiation. But that happens really, really slowly. So the black holes that we see in the universe now, pretty much they grow and they pretty much don't get any smaller over time. Um, so as far as we know, yeah, they are effectively forever. Uh, the question then becomes, if you wait long enough, as you asked, are they actually going to eat up everything? Um, and really that comes down to 
what happens to the whole universe? We know that the acceleration, that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. Uh, the universe is expanding, and it's actually expanding faster and faster over time now. And if that keeps going faster, then what it'll do is take all the material and actually move it away from the black holes faster than the black holes can suck it in. And so in that case, you get a bunch of black holes around, but they don't end up completely eating everything because uh, they haven't had time to eat it before it flies away due to the uh, expansion of the universe. So if, if things sort of continue along as they are, we'll have a lot of black holes, but they won't have devoured everything. You can imagine another situation, though, where in the distant future, uh, the um, expansion of the universe changes again and it starts to slow down. And in that case, yeah, you could imagine uh, a scenario where uh, black holes begin to eat a lot again and, and eat up uh, even more matter. Is there a way to identify some sort of matter, tag it or identify it as, as it approaches a black hole and then look for it to see if it ever comes out the other side? Ah, this is this is a great question, and actually gets at a really deep, uh, again, sort of science philosophical question about the nature of um, information when things fall onto a black hole. Like, is is the nature of something actually completely lost uh, when it goes onto a black hole or not? Um, and I think that's not completely settled in principle. In practice. Uh, you can think about what happens if you fall into a black hole. What happens if a human being falls onto a black hole? Well, um, for a relatively small black hole, like, you know, 10 times the size of the sun, you'd get completely ripped apart by the gravity, and you'd be ripped apart to your component atoms. Go ahead, say um, the fun word. So, oh, so, but you know the word. Spaghettified. Spaghettified, right? <laughs> um, and, and it seems gruesome, but I said that it would happen so quickly that you would never actually be in, in the shape of spaghetti strands it would just be but you said not necessarily if it were a big black hole you could actually happen slowly enough so you you would actually be aware of it happening uh, that's right and actually you could fall into the black hole before it even begins to happen to you so you would have been already past the edge of the black hole you're past the point of no return so you're, you're there's enough gravity so it's drawing you in but enough not yet enough gravity to to Spaghettify you. Spaghettify you. That's and you might right. start looking at your hand and going, "Oh my God, I'm becoming spaghettified." Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, it really depends on on how big the black hole is. A smaller one, like a few times, ten times the mass of the sun, it'd be pretty fast, and you'd be pretty much gone. But for a bigger one, um, it would it would take a, a fair amount longer. Okay. But what this means, of course, to answer your original question, is that. You would be ripped apart into a sense that you would be uh, unrecognizable. And so in practice, the experiment you're talking about would be really, really hard to do. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go into the hole. I'm going to identify some other matter. Right. I don't know if you'd identify it by some sort of radiological signature or something. Sure. I guess you the, right. look for it to come out the other side. Yeah. I mean, I get the, the issue would be... Can you send something that's recognizable that's not just going to get torn apart yeah. uh, by the black hole? And um, so, so far, like, does it really come out the other side? I'm, I guess this kind of gets at the question about are there other dimensions and is it possible that black holes are portals to other dimensions? You can right. just say no and be done with it, or maybe it is. <laughs> All I'm going to say to that is that's way beyond my pay grade in terms of what I think about with black holes. Okay, I do know that people think about 
there being you know additional dimensions and black holes are representing a kind of warping of space into those dimensions. Okay. Um, but beyond that, I got to say, uh, I got some colleagues maybe you could talk to. At Dartmouth, okay, but. two more questions about black holes, and sure. then I'll try to kind of get back to that. So there's a black hole, so what? How does that affect us? Right. Um, well, there's a few things that uh, black holes do that affect our surroundings. At least for me, the most interesting one probably is that we have this huge black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. So we live in this big galaxy that has about 100 billion stars in it. And right down at the center, there's a black hole that weighs about 4 million times the mass of the sun. Um, and it turns out that every once in a while, that black hole eats some stuff and it heats up and glows the way we talked about before, gives off a bunch of radiation. And that actually does crazy things to the material in the galaxy and changes how uh, stars form and how structures form within the galaxy. And so our galaxy, the Milky Way that we live in, would look different if it didn't have a black hole in the center. So in a sense, it, it's critical for understanding our home, as it were. Um, a black hole is too far away to affect things like our communications and such. Right. Well, so this is actually an interesting question that people are starting to look into. If the black hole, it has this limit as to how powerful it can get that we talked about before. If it gets to its maximum power, what would it do to the Earth? And it's possible that it might do some things like, uh, you know, ionize the upper atmosphere, and that could actually change um, some aspects of evolution on Earth. So people have people have thought about that a little bit. It turns out that the the Earth is reasonably safe. We're far enough away from the black hole, and we got a lot of stuff between us and it, so we're fairly well protected. But if you put a planet like the Earth down close to the center of the galaxy, then every, you know, however many millions of years, when the black hole eats some stuff and switches on, that planet would get fried by the radiation from the black hole. And so there's a concept that people have come up with uh, suggesting that the inner parts of the galaxy the Milky Way, near the black hole, may actually not be able to have uh, habitable planets that would be habitable for life because they would constantly be irradiated. So um, it could, depending on where you sit, the black hole could actually have a pretty profound effect on, on uh, the development of life or civilizations. Okay. We've covered black holes. Thank you. And now I have a series of what are pretty much high school questions, but you being able to explain things the way you are, I'm going to ask them because it'll help me understand and not only help me understand, but get me to the point where I could explain it to somebody else if I wanted to. Ready? Sure. Explain sure. E equal MC squared. Aha. So this gets back to this uh, concept of relativity. We talked about Einstein doing this thought experiment where he said, what, ha what happens if I assume that the speed of light is the same for, for all observers? Um, I won't go through all the math here uh, because that actually takes a little while. And, you know, I would have <laughs> to describe a whole bunch of equations for yeah. you. Uh, but in the end, what the consequence of that, if you follow that all the way through uh, to its conclusion, what that suggests is that uh, there are ways to uh, take mass in the universe and convert it to an equivalent amount of energy or vice versa. Okay. So... You have e energy equal mass times the speed of light squared, right? Right. It seems so arbitrary, speed of light squared. So E, energy equals the mass times the speed of light squared. So I, if you want to find out the energy, you take the mass 
times the speed of light squared, and you have the energy. Can you like plug in a number there and like? Sure. Yeah. So you can so, say like plug in the numbers so I can find out how how much the energy is. Just a absolutely. So you could you could say. Yeah. Um, if you have some certain amount of mass and you want to just directly convert it to energy, how much? Uh, okay, energy let's would pick an pick an amount of mass that works easily. Oh boy, off the top of my head, this is a tricky one. Um, I don't have I don't have some ten, numbers readily how about just available. Come up with something that's easy to work with, like ten tons. Right. Uh, yeah. So how much energy that would correspond to? I have to. I have to. So it would be ten. Do you work in pounds? 10,000 kilograms, that would be. Okay. Um, Times 186,000. Well, you could just multiply by 10 to the 8 meters per second squared. So 10 to the 17. So it's 10 to the 4. So, so it would be like something like 10 to the 20-something joules. And how much is, is a joule? A very uh, large amount. A joule is... Um, uh, Connected to, you can think about a joule as being related, for example, to a calorie. Okay. And so a, something approximately a few hundred joules um, or a thousand joules, I can't remember the exact conversion, corresponds to sort of... A calorie um, is the amount of right. energy it takes to burn... What is that? What is a calorie? Uh, the <laughs> calorie is defined as the... To be honest with you, I okay. I, I'm we get, you got me on the we spot. We get the here, idea. So. That's all right. I don't want to. I don't. We have a short short amount of time. We right. get how to do it. Yeah. You pick some amount of mass, and then times one hundred eighty six thousand times one hundred eighty six thousand, and right. that is how much energy you have. That's exactly right. And so the which is how you make a bomb. Yeah. So it's how exactly it's how you make a hydrogen bomb. So what happens is you think about when a when you have a hydrogen bomb, you take some hydrogen and you fuse it into helium. And the helium that's left over in the middle of the hydrogen bomb weighs just a little bit less than the hydrogen that you started with. Yeah. And that difference in mass gets converted to energy in the explosion. Um, and that turns out to be uh, um, the amount that you actually get out in terms of the yield of the explosion is indeed uh, given to you by that this equation. Just um, a note on how elegant that simp that is so simple yeah. and so elegant. When you folks, when you're trying to find the answer to a problem in the universe, the correct answer is probably the most elegant. Remember that in, in all <laughs> things. Uh, let's take a break, and we have other things to get to. In only 12 minutes to do it, it's WBZ. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Jay talk. Jay talking. Talk with Bradley Jay. WBZ News Radio 1030. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J. on BZ Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ, you know, I think it's worth 60 seconds to wrap up what we were talking about when we were trying to use the 
uh, e equal mc squared to understand how much mass it would take to get the amount of energy that you get out of a hydrogen bomb. And we, we have that, our guest here, Ryan uh, Hickox from Dartmouth, uh, plugged the numbers in and made it pretty clear. Yeah, so it's around a kilogram, turns out. So if you ask how much, uh, how much mass is actually lost in the conversion of from hydrogen to helium in a hydrogen bomb, it's about one kilogram, and that produces um, an ten to the about ten to the uh, sixteen or ten to the seventeen joules of energy, which is a gigantic amount of energy. Right, which is, and you use the equal mc square basically to arrive at that. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is basic one hundred and one kind of stuff. But I'm still not convinced of the Big Bang. Convince me. Right. Uh, I get to, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it seems to me so arbitrary that at some point all the matter in the universe was the size of the, the head of a pin, and arbitrarily something caused it to explode. Right. Just the lack of cause there is, gives me pause. No cause gives me pause. Can you uh, help me out? Sure. So uh, there's really two questions here. It's First is, did the Big Bang happen? And then the second is what actually caused it to happen. So I think that um, the evidence that the Big Bang happened is really, really strong and is generally accepted by uh, pretty much everybody in the uh, mainstream scientific community. And the reason for this is, is uh, uh, there's really sort of independent, compelling pieces of evidence. Three major pieces. The three major pieces, that's right. They're called the three pillars. Oh. And so the first one is that when you look around us, you see the universe is expanding. This was what uh, Hubble, who had the space telescope named after him, that's what he discovered. We talked about that. Yeah. And in that pillar, this was the one that kind of gave me a problem if it were by itself, is that we see it expanding. So we kind of back engineer that expansion to an extreme contraction all the way to a pinpoint of all matter being right here. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, but who's to say that it just happened once? Why, why doesn't it necessarily yo-yo? It contracts and it expands, and it contracts and it expands. So you have the answer to that, right? Well, I mean, the what happens what happens when we run that clock backwards is uh, something that was disconcerting to a lot of people when this idea was proposed, and there were a lot of people who thought, "No, there must be something else going on. There's new space being made all the time. The universe is kind of uh, constantly doing this kind of thing, and it hasn't just all come from a single uh, very dense state, but." Uh, there were two other things that were discovered in the middle of the 20th century that really showed that the universe really did start that way. Um, the first one, which you may have heard of, is called the cosmic microwave background. So it turns out if we look anywhere in any direction in the universe, there are these microwaves that are just kind of uh, producing this uniform hiss across the whole sky. And it turns out if you have like an old CRT television, um, one of the, the old-fashioned ones where you you know it's not in... Uh, tuned into a station you get yeah. that snow on there yeah exactly there's actually a, a small fraction of that is coming from this hiss from the big bang yeah. so you've actually seen it on your own tv um that was people predicted that if the universe started out really hot and dense that it would go through this phase where it released a whole bunch of radiation early on and over time as the universe expanded that radiation would get stretched out into long wavelengths that we see in the microwaves and uh, that's what we should see is this sort of uniform glow from the Big Bang. In okay. the 1960s, they found exactly what was predicted. Exactly in the uh, quantitatively or qualitatively? Both. Okay. Actually, so quantitatively, 
the, the properties of this background radiation are exactly what you would expect from the Big Bang. So that was, that was one of them. Um, the other uh, third, the pillar. third pillar is what we call uh, Big Bang and nucleosynthesis. So this has to do with where the elements in the universe come from. If you think about it, the simplest element in the universe is hydrogen. Hydrogen has one proton and one electron. And if you imagine the sort of most straightforward picture you can, the whole universe would just be made out of hydrogen. But we know that even very early on in the universe, there wasn't just hydrogen, there was also helium and a few other heavy elements like uh, uh, you know, beryllium and uh, slightly uh, elements with a, a few more protons and neutrons. And the question is, where did that stuff come from? Yeah, that's the question. All so right. if you run, if you think about what the universe very early on would look like when it was compressed all down to a single point or to, or to a very, very dense state, it would be extremely dense and extremely hot, basically just like the interior of the sun. And people had already worked out how to figure out how uh, hydrogen gets converted to helium in the sun. This is actually the same exact reaction that happens in a uh, hydrogen bomb. And they could do those same calculations for what you would expect in the early universe. And what they find is that about a quarter of the mass in the universe ought to have been converted into helium when uh, the, this sort of early dense state of the universe that we would call the Big Bang happened. And so... This total mystery, where does the helium come from? And indeed, it works not just for the helium, but also for the lithium and the beryllium and the boron, the other heavier elements. Um, the, uh, you could run through those calculations, and you get exactly the amount of uh, okay. those materials that we see. So what precipitated the bang? Ah, so that— We only have a minute. That we're still trying to figure okay, out. Okay, you don't know. <laughs> we don't Very good. Now, if, you have, if only matter in the universe, which is way more than in any old black hole— is condensed that small, why wasn't that in itself the grandest of all black holes? Um, well, it looks, so it has to do partly with the fact that the universe is expanding, but there really is, this is a really interesting question because the math that describes the curvature of space around a black hole is very similar to the math that we use to describe the whole universe. Um, and so it's not exactly analogous, really, in terms of the way that we do it, but you can kind of imagine the whole universe in some ways as behaving like one big black hole. Man, you're the best. Ryan Hickox, Associate Professor of Physics up at the great Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire. Sometime I'm going to come up there and hang out. They can take a bus up there, right? I mean, that's kind of a field trip. Yeah, All right. great. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. And again, Dartmouth, you are fortunate to have Ryan Hickox on your staff. Really appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.